Well, the more I've uh, thought about it this week, the more I've realised that what is faith is one of the most important questions that any human being can ask. Why? Well, because faith is our vital link to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I take it most of us this morning are aware of Jesus' death uh, on the cross for sin, of his rising again on the third day. But what makes us part of those events? What links us to them? What makes his death our death? What makes his resurrection our resurrection? Well, the Bible's answer is that the Holy Spirit unites us to these events by faith. That by faith, a supernatural bond is formed between us and Christ. Meaning that we benefit from his saving acts uh, of dying on the cross. Uh, Faith is a bridge, if you like, that brings us the benefits of Christ. So what faith is then becomes crucially important, doesn't it? Because it's what unites us to Christ. So without faith, we cannot be in God's kingdom. We cannot be saved from God's wrath. We cannot have a relationship with God. It's as simple as that. But it's more than that too. Uh, This is not just a matter for those who are starting out uh, in the walk of faith, if you like. It's not just for those who are beginning the Christian life. Because actually, faith is not just how we start the Christian life. Faith is how we go on in the Christian life. It's not a ticket to the game, if you like. It's the game itself. It's not the marriage ceremony that we sort of saw with uh, Harry and Meghan. It's the marriage itself. So it's not just how we get in. It's how we carry on as well. So remember that the author of Hebrews is writing this to people who have faith. What he's trying to tell them is how to carry on having faith. So what he describes here in this passage is really persevering faith. Faith that keeps going. Faith is quite a general term if you think about it, isn't it? All sorts of people have faith. You have faith in governments, in people, in cars, in pension funds. But what is it about genuine saving faith that perseveres? Well, that's our first point, persevering faith. Have a look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, there are two possible ways you can take verse 1, because the Greek is quite tough. You can either read it as uh, what we've got it here, or I've got on the, you've got on the back of your notice sheets how the New King James translates it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. What that's saying there is that the fact of our faith becomes proof that what we can't see exists. Uh, it's here and now, or it's the here and now of what we hope for in the future, uh, if you like. And lots of good people down the ages have thought that, but I'm going to go with our translation this morning in the ESV. Uh, Not so much for the Greek, because you can read it either way, but by the context of what follows, what comes afterwards, how he shows us what this faith looks like. So what do we mean when we say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen? Well, we mean that persevering faith is persuaded by the promises of God. The assurance it speaks of is not assurance of our salvation per se, it's the assurance of what we hope for, 
What we hope for is the fulfilment of the promises that God has made that are coming in the future. So a person with persevering faith takes God at his word. If God says it will happen, it will happen. Why is this such a crucial element of persevering faith? Well, because we need to know that when the going gets tough, the outcome is secure. We need to know that God's promises will come to pass. The new creation, the final rescue from sin and hell. And if we lose sight of that cert- the certainty of those things, then we'll be tempted to waver in the battle. We also um, see that persevering faith is assured of the unseen. Do you see that in the second part of the verse? The conviction of things not seen. This doesn't mean blind faith, but a faith that acknowledges that are things that we cannot see, which are at work. There is a spiritual reality behind what is happening in the world. This verse always reminds me of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. I put that on the back of your notice sheets as well. So there's a huge army. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That wasn't deliberate with the chariots of fire thing (laughs) earlier. Um, But do you see that there's this situation where it looks like they're outnumbered? If they look with their eyes, that's what they can see. But behind that, the unseen, is that actually there are countless horses and chariots that are there to fight for them. So on the surface, the situation is hopeless. They're surrounded and outnumbered. But behind the physical, there's an invisible spiritual truth. Countless angels ready there to take on the oncoming army. So persevering faith knows that there is a spiritual reality behind the physical appearance. And just because it cannot be seen does not mean that it is not real. Just because it is not seen does not mean that we cannot feel its effects. I mean, for example, can you see the wind? It's a lovely day today, there's not a lot of wind about, is there? But you can't see the wind, can you? But does it stop it from blowing down your fence? No, I've had that several times. You can't see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And to believe in the wind is not intellectual suicide, it's not blind faith. It's actually quite sensible in light of the evidence. And the same is true with these spiritual realities. You can't see the spiritual realities behind what goes on every day. But you can see their effects. You can see how they impact the world. So faith in the unseen is not intellectual suicide. And actually it's the only thing that makes sense of this world. And it's essential to keep us going as we live in this world. Why is it essential? Well, because if we take things at face value, we're going to misunderstand what's going on, aren't we? The Hebrews, for example, we learnt last week, had had their stuff taken. They'd been thrown into prison at points. How were they supposed to take what was happening? Was God angry with them? Were they doing the wrong thing? No, actually, they perceived the spiritual reality behind the physical one. They saw with William Cooper, or Cowper, I never know how to pronounce that, 
in his famous hymn, God Works in Mysterious Ways, they saw that uh, God had a smiling face behind a frowning providence. So what does the author, uh, so the author wants the people to see this, he wants the Hebrews to see this. So he gives them a list of examples of people who did that, who saw the unseen, if you like, who saw behind the physical reality, who hoped in God's promises. And more than that, he tells us actually in verse 2 that they were commended for this. So in verse 2, 4, by it, the people of old received their commendation. In other words, this faith that they had was what made them right with God. And he points out the elements of faith that he wants to highlight as he goes along. So we're going to look at the first half this week and the second half next week. The first examples he gives are those who showed that persevering faith is assured of the unseen. Let me give you the first example there in verse 3. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. He starts right back at the beginning of the Bible. Right back at creation. What is the unseen thing here that the world was made from? It's the word of God. The word of God here created the universe. You can't see it because it was spoken. People sometimes ask us as a church why we put so much emphasis on God's word on a Sunday morning. Well, it's because God puts such an emphasis on God's word, doesn't he? He could have made the world any way he liked by sort of metaphorically clicking his fingers or blinking his anthropomorphic eyes uh, to create the world. But he didn't do that, did he? He did it by speaking his powerful word. The world was brought into being by the word of God. You can't really give the word of God a higher status, really. But it's by faith that we understand this, the assurance of things not seen. We can't go back and see it, can we? Even if we could, in one sense, there would be nothing to see, because what was happening was God was speaking. Now, there's much debate over how God created the world by speaking. There are those who believe um, that the well. Um, there are those as well who believe that the world came into being without any intervention from God. But I want to tell you this morning that they have faith in the unseen too. Um, they believe there was a big bang that happened all by itself. But interestingly, of course, you can't go back and see the big bang. Uh, they make the same claims as we do about our faith in the unseen. They say, well, you can observe the effects. That's just what we've been saying about faith. And in that sense, we're on the same footing. And in fact, I think most scientists go even further with their belief in the unseen than we do sometimes. I don't know if you are into science, but I, I was always one of my favourite subjects at school. I've kept following it since. For 80 years, they've been looking for something called dark matter. I don't know if you've come across dark matter. Dark matter is called dark matter because you can't see it. That's why it's called dark. Indeed, no one actually has ever observed dark matter. It's never been found the reason that it, mu- it must exist, according to scientists, is that without it, the Big Bang doesn't work. All the equations that he did for the Big Bang need a lot more material than we've got in the universe to make it happen. So they said, well, because the equations need it, it must be there. So instead of ditching the theory, they literally have half a universe that they've created that has never been seen, observed or measured and possibly can't be obscene, ever be seen, observed or measured. 
So friends, don't let the scientific community, or certain parts of it, tell you that they only believe in the measurable and observable. Actually, we both have positions of faith on this. The question is, what is more trustworthy? A self-exploding Big Bang, with equations that don't work, or the Word of God? Now, like I say, people come to different conclusions about exactly how this happened, but nobody can claim that it's without faith. We have to trust. By faith, we understand that God made the world by his word, however he chose to do that. But it has to be by faith because we can't see it. It was made from things that are not seen. So that's the first example, creation, and the way that we understand it was made from the unseen. He then gives us a sort of interlude of people who please God by their faith in the unseen. The first is Abel, and the second uh, is Enoch. Uh, Let me read you verses 4 and 5. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up, so he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Well, firstly, like I say, we get Abel. Here is one of the uh, Bible's biggest mysteries answered. Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God and Cain's not? Well, the answer is because Abel made his by faith, trusting in God. And because of his faith, even though he died, he still speaks. That is, we're able to learn from Abel's example of faith. Enoch, on the other hand, he's the sort of flip side of the coin, if you think about it. Enoch, on the other hand, speaks even though he did not die. So you get the first person who died and the first person who did not die, or the only person who did not die. Oh, so, no, there's two, but yeah, that, one of the two people who did not die. Ask me about it afterwards or write it on a blue slip if you like. But here, actually, with Enoch, he himself is the thing that's not visible. Actually, he was taken uh, by God. But before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew phrase, he walked with God. They translated it as he pleased God. So Enoch pleased God by his faith, and he never saw death. The next example is another man who pleased God, Noah, in verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Noah here again is this person who believes in the unseen. Noah believed God when he told him of events not yet seen. That is when God warned him of the flood that was to come. Now, why is this events not seen rather than hoping in the future? We said there were those two different uh, categories, didn't we? Well, I think firstly, because a flood like this has never been seen before, nor has ever been again. And I think also God's promises are usually seen as positive. So they're the sort of good side of things. He doesn't promise judgment so much. He threatens judgment. He tells people that judgment is coming. So it's not a promise that he hoped in. It's something that he believed when God said it. And Noah believed God and showed it by building an ark to save himself and his family. And even though he had his faults, 
We saw that, didn't we, when we looked in Genesis uh, last year. He became an heir to the righteousness that is by faith. That is, he was made righteous by his faith. We don't often think about Noah as being that guy, do we? The one made righteous by faith. But actually, Hebrews tells us that he is. The one we normally think of as being righteous by faith in the Old Testament is Abraham, which is exactly where he takes us next, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that was, uh, he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham, too, had faith in the unseen. In this case, it was an unseen land. He did not know where he was going. When he set out, he didn't know his destination. He only knew that he was to go to the land that God would show him. He trusted God, even though the destination was unseen. So all these people trusted in the unseen. But there's more that the author wants to show us. Slap bang in the middle of this section. He's placed a sort of commentary on what he's talking about. Have a look back at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here he sort of starts addressing the reader again, doesn't he? He says, without faith... It is impossible to shrink, uh, sorry, to, to please God. So it's not possible to shrink back. That's what we saw in chapter 10. Not possible to shrink back and please God. You can't go back to your old way of life and still please him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you ditch your faith, he says you cannot please God. And this has massive implications for it, doesn't it, as Christians? It's not enough to ditch Christ and focus on something else. So ditch Christ and focus on charity. Ditch Christ and focus on law keeping. Ditch Christ and focus on being nice. You could be the most law abiding, nicest, charitable person in the world. But if you haven't got faith, then you can never please God, whoever you are, whatever you do. And the same is true for our friends who don't yet have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's the crucial ingredient that we cannot do without. To try and please God without it is like trying to make omelettes without eggs. Like trying to make burgers without beef. I believe McDonald's may have tried that at one point, but uh, they failed, didn't they? It doesn't matter how much cheese you put into your omelette. It doesn't matter how many onions you put into your burgers. If you miss the key ingredients... It won't work, will it? You cannot please God without faith. So what does this key ingredient entail? Well, remember back in chapter 10, he called us to draw near in faith. Well, now he explains a bit what that faith entails. As we draw near to God, there in verse 6, it tells us that we must believe that he exists. That's simple enough, isn't it? How can you please God if you don't believe he exists? How can you draw near to a God you don't believe is real? All the people it's talked about believe that God was there. It's pretty hard to please someone you don't believe is there. But it also entails believing he rewards those who seek him. How does he reward them? Well, he rewards them with finding. Do you remember Jesus said, all who seek, find. If they're genuinely seeking. Even though God is unseen in one sense... 
he may be found. So we see through all of this that faith is the assurance of the unseen. And that's the key ingredient that we must have as we trust in God. Faith in uh, the unseen, the spiritual realities that are going on behind our world. And then our last point is that faith, or persevering faith, is persuaded by God's promises. Persuaded by God's promises. We're given more examples of this, but now the sort of focus switches from faith in the unseen, that's not mentioned so much, to now faith in God's promises. Abraham and Sarah, you see here, are looking for a better city. Let me read you verses 9 to 11. By faith he went out to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. So the unknown land, in the verse before, now becomes the land of promise. The children that he has are heirs of the promise. And his belief in the promise is expressed in that he lives in the promised land as though it were not the promised land. Do you notice that? He never builds a house there. Uh, He actually lives in a tent in the promised land. I think probably in our sort of situation, we don't have many folks now who live in tents, do we? But it sort of gives you that impression of, I don't know if you've ever had this experience of moving house, and you sort of know that you're going to be moving house again sometime soon. So you know you've got your boxes that you, you sort of move to your house and you think, well, I'll, I won't unpack that one. I'll just, just leave it there. My parents did this uh, 36 years ago, I think it was. <laughs> they put some ornaments in a box. They're still in the cubby hole uh, in my mum's house. She never moved house again. Um, but the idea of not unpacking. Or, you know, when you go to someone's house and, you know, you keep your coat on. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. And they sort of say, oh, you're not stopping. You know, you're supposed to take your coat off, aren't you, when you're, you're stopping. Or perhaps it's more like on a birthday. You know when you know that something else is coming? So, you know, you get your present on the morning. And, you, well, you've got to sort of hedge your bets a little bit, haven't you? You think, is this my main present? Mm. It's a tough one, isn't it? And if it's not your main present, you've got to hold back your enthusiasm a little bit. So you can be really enthusiastic later. If you're over-enthusiastic with the sort of little present, you've got nothing left for the big one. Well, if you like... Abraham and Sarah do these things as they go into the promised land. They, they don't really unpack. They don't take the coat off. They sort of with, withhold their excitement for something later on. Because actually, we're told, they know something better is coming. Do you see that in verse 10? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's saying, well, we better not be too excited with what we've got already, because something better is coming. They're looking forward to a city, not a glorified campsite, if you like. Abraham never built a permanent city or dwelling, not even a house, let alone a city. You can't go to the the land now and go see a city that bears Abraham's name. There is no city or town of Abraham, because actually he was looking forward to another one. They're looking forward to a city with foundations. Now, I don't know much about camping, 
For I know that tents don't have foundations. Do they? If you built a foundation for your tent, it's a bit overkill really, isn't it? Houses have foundations. They're solid. They're permanent. They're painstakingly prepared. We uh, live on the Western Estate. And uh, behind the Western Estate, they're building uh, 75 new houses. And they've been at it for a long time. We hear the diggers every morning sort of going. And you know, there's not a single bit of house yet. All they've been doing so far is just laying the foundations. And it's taken them ages to do it because they want to get the foundations right. Actually, a city with foundations is one that's been carefully prepared, one that's been designed well. And it should be, because the city that they're looking forward to has been designed and built by God. So you notice, like I said, there's not a city that bears Abraham's name, but here's a city that bears God's name. He will design it. He will build it. Notice, first of all, he designed it. It's not man's idea. It's not some grand idea of man to build this great city. Actually, it's a grand design of God. Second thing to note, God will build it. It's not man's achievement. It's not our cleverness or ingenuity that will get there. Actually, God will build it. Well, what is the city that Abraham was looking forward to? Well, it can be none other than the New Jerusalem. Long before the first Jerusalem had even come into existence, God had planned the New Jerusalem. Just listen to what the Bible tells us about this New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, not up from man, prepared by God as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. That is what Abraham and Sarah were longing for. Not an earthly city or country, but a heavenly one. And they showed it in the way that they held this world loosely. By living as though they weren't stopping. You know, you taking your coat off, Abraham? No, actually, I'm on my way to somewhere else. A heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. And of course, in this section, Sarah receives promises too. Now, some think this is Abraham again. Long story involves lots of Greek. Let's just say both of them to cover our bases. Abraham and Sarah are promised that they would conceive a child. And they believe God. Why do they believe it? Well, is it because it looks likely? Well, no, Sarah has been infertile all her life and is now way past childbearing age. Is it because this sort of thing happens all the time? No, actually, even with all our medical knowledge now, there are couples who still find it really hard to conceive. And we still don't see 80-year-old mothers sort of just wandering around, do we? No, they believe because God, they considered him faithful. They trusted God because they considered him trustworthy. They had faith in him because they considered him faithful. They weren't persuaded by the circumstances. They weren't persuaded by their perception of the situation. They were persuaded by the promises of God. Not because they were easy promises, you know, I'll buy you an ice cream or something like that. But because God keeps his promises. They built their whole lives on the fact that God keeps his promises. They made their decisions based on the fact that God keeps his promises. 
Is that what we base our decisions on? Is that what we base our lives on? Friends, this is what faith is. Believing that God will keep his promises. And we see in our passage that God does keep his promises. Have a look at 12 to 16. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. None of these people received what was promised while they were still alive. You could argue in a way that Sarah did, but that was part of a bigger promise, wasn't it? Alluded to in verse 12, that her descendants would be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That didn't happen during her lifetime. In fact, when she died, she'd still only just got Isaac. Isaac hadn't even got married at that point, so she just had one son. But God did keep his promise. And he speaks of it as having already happened. God has already given us even descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That language is used of scripture of the Israelites. God kept his promise. But during their lifetime, they did not get what was promised. They greeted it from afar. I don't know, it sort of makes me think of that sort of situation you get where you see somebody across a busy road or, you know, across the river wharf and it would be really hard to cross. So you just sort of greet them from afar and you you start doing hand gestures. You know, we'll we'll meet down there. We'll, you know, have a cup of tea. All those sorts of things. They greeted them from afar. They didn't meet them up close, if you like, but they they greeted them from a distance. I suppose I've had that situation uh, once in London. I went to the Houses of Parliament on a school trip. And I saw Boris Johnson um, catching a taxi. It was a long time ago before he was uh, sort of famous. But I I greeted him from afar. Uh, I I wouldn't say that I know Boris Johnson. You know, I wouldn't even talk to Boris Johnson. But I greeted him from afar. But these people did it on purpose. You might argue I could have done it on purpose with Boris Johnson, but they did it on purpose, greeting it from afar, because they knew something better was coming. They acknowledged that they didn't belong in this world, that they were just passing through. Strangers and exiles, foreigners and temporary residents, waiting to go home. So they didn't unpack. They didn't get comfy in this world. They didn't start thinking of what it was like back home, where they came from, like the Israelites in the wilderness did. They pressed on and did not look back. They longed for their heavenly country. They longed for their home in glory, so they pressed on and didn't give up. Even if it meant a lifelong camping trip, even if it meant not having the world's creature comforts, they looked forward to that day when God himself would be with them, believing that it would happen, because he had promised And he will do it. So our passage finishes with that incredible statement in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. God is not ashamed to be called their God. 
Wow. Bearing in mind what we know about ourselves. Bearing in mind what we know about them. Yet God was not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't this all what we long for? A husband or wife that says to you, I'm I'm not ashamed to be called your spouse. Despite your embarrassing foibles, despite your annoying habits. Or, Or a child that says to us, you know, I'm not ashamed to be called your son or daughter. Despite your dad dancing or despite your mum kissing you goodbye in front of your friends. A God who says, I'm not ashamed to be called your God. A God who says, I'm proud of you. Isn't that what every child wants to hear? Isn't that what every child of God wants to hear? How do we receive that commendation? By living by faith. By trusting in him. And for those people, God has prepared a city. We know that he's not embarrassed by us because he's prepared to spend eternity with us. More than that, he's built us a city, a city that will bear his name, that will be our home, where he will live with his people. And to quote George Foreman, he's so proud of us, he's put his name on us. So he will keep his promises. Faith is seeing the unseen and believing God's promises. What promises has he made us? So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Speaking of our trials, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Or in the New Testament, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Or in Hebrews itself, in chapter 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. And ultimately, he's promised us the same city, hasn't he, that he promised to Abraham. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 3. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. We're promised the heavenly Jerusalem. It's there for all who have faith who trust in the unseen and believe God's promises and persevere in their faith. So will you be there on that final day? If you haven't uh, sort of looked into Christianity before, well, actually, you need to have faith. What is faith? Well, it's that question we started with, isn't it? And now we know. Trusting in the promises of God, not in our own abilities or in our own power, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though unseen... I'm going to pause for the helicopter. I used to be in a church that actually was right next to a helicopter park and, uh, like, you know, hospital, and it used to happen quite often. There we go. I'll start that again. What is faith? Trusting in the promises of God, not in our own abilities or in our own power. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though unseen, is the source of our salvation. Trusting in his cross, which, although on the surface looks powerless with the eyes of faith it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe and if you do have faith this morning God is telling us through the author of Hebrews keep having faith keep trusting in the unseen 
Keep trusting that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Keep being persuaded of the promises of God, that trusting in those promises will sustain you to the end. And if we turn back, we won't make it. But brothers and sisters, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith in the unseen, in the promises of God, and preserve our souls. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of faith. Father, thank you that you've given it to us. And Father, we pray that we would have persevering faith. Father, pray that as we look at all these examples of people who live by faith, help us to live like they did, holding loosely to this world and trusting in your promises, trusting in the unseen, that we might make it to the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.